Thank you very much. If you would turn to 1 John chapter 4, it's good to see you this morning, glad you could be here, hope you've had a good week. What I'd like to do this morning is, in a sense, to finish what I started last week in talking about the good life from 1 Timothy 6, but I'd like to use 1 John 4 to talk about what undergirds everything we said last week and is essential to everything we said last week. Last week I was trying to answer the question, what is essential for us as Christians? What is essential for us in life in light of um, the pandemic and the protests and everything else that our country is going through? What should be our essential response? And we talked about the fact that love should be the essential response. And yet today I want to talk about how we pursue the kind of love that we talked about last week. So let me read for us verses 7 through 21 of 1 John chapter 4. John says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected In us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. This is the word of God. Obviously, you read that passage and you realize that that John is very concerned about the topic of love. And he talks about all kinds of things that has to do with the issue of love. And last week, I argued from 1 Timothy chapter 6, could have brought in some other verses, could have brought in all kinds of verses, but just used that one passage to talk about uh, three kinds of love that I believe the Bible uh, commands us to manifest in our lives. One is the love of God. And we define that as living to please God and being pleased with God. And one verse 
We didn't read this verse in chapter 5, but in 1 John 5, 3, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, which is the pleasing God part. And his commandments are not burdensome. That is the be pleased with God part. Because if we're pleased with God, if we're satisfied in God, if we believe that we have all that we need in God, then the person that has all that we need and all that we desire um, is someone that we can gladly submit to and live to please. That's the whole idea. And so loving God very much comes is a matter of action and affection. Action that moves me to obey God based on affection for God. The second thing we talked about was loving people. And what is love for people? Love for people is to do, to do them good and to desire their good even if they don't return that doing or that desiring. And that's why in, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. So love is doing good. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Then he says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. What does it take to bless someone, truly bless someone? You have to have a heart that they be blessed. Um, to pray for someone, truly pray for someone, you have to desire that God would do them good. Isn't that the purpose of praying for people? So you desire their good. So you do them good and you desire their good. And that's what it means to love people. It's not just action, but it is action plus a kind of affection for them. And then finally, we talked about loving life. And loving life isn't about, you know, I'm just wanting to do all the fun things that I can do, go to Disneyland all the time or anything like that. It's not what I'm talking about. Nothing wrong with Disneyland. But loving life is much more about um, receiving everything from the hand of God and giving him thanks as a, as a gift from him and tracing everything back to his heart and worshiping him as the good giver of that gift. And so loving life is I experience life in such a way that I thank God for whatever it is I have. Obviously, we, we should thank him for the good things. As we grow, we begin to see that um, God sometimes and often wraps good things in very difficult, painful packages. And yet, there's in our lives, there are things that we might call inherently good that we're to trace back to God and thank God for and worship God for. Then there are things that we should consider intentionally good. It's like Joseph said to his brothers, you um, intended evil, but God intended good. So you did me evil, but God intended good from the evil that I experienced. So as a result, we're to trace everything back to God, thank everything Uh, Thank God for everything, and we're to worship him as a giver of good gifts. That's what it means to love life, that whatever my life involves, includes, I find reason to thanks, give thanks. I find reason to worship. I find, I see in it the goodness of God, and I trace it back to him, and I worship him. That's the whole basis for what it says in 1 Thessalonians when it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now the question is, what is this? This is God's will. 
uh, everything you just said. It includes the rejoicing, it includes the praying, it includes the giving thanks, it includes everything that the rejoicing is in light of, and everything the prayers are in light of, and everything the giving thanks is in light of, which means God's sovereign will and his decreed, excuse me, his commanded will are both involved in that. I just wanted to remind you of that because that is a life that glorifies God, where I love God, I love people, and I love life in those ways. The question is, what's essential to those essentials? If those three things are essential in this time for us to respond to the pandemic and the protests and everything that's going on in our country, God wants us to love him. He wants us to love people. He wants, to, wants us to love life in a country that seems to be unraveling. He wants us to be filled with rejoicing and with thanksgiving. So how do we do that? That brings us to what you may have seen at the very end of your notes last week, which is the whole issue of the love of God for us. In 1 John 4, if you look at verse 19, It says, we love because he first loved us. So what is the basis for our loving? Whether it's loving God, loving people, or even in some sense loving life. Well, the basis is the love of God for us. That is crucial for us to be able to love like God calls us to love. And that's why it says in verse 16 of 1 John 4, we have come to know And have believed the love which God has for us. We've come to know and believe. Those are two things. To know uh, that it is a reality. And secondly, to believe it's true for me. Personally. And John can say, we have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. There's a theologian uh, named Karl Barth, controversial theologian, uh, but one time he came to the uh, U.S. He was born in Switzerland and lived in Germany, but he came to the U.S., spoke at the University of Chicago. Uh, he was one of the most prolific uh, theologians in the history of the church, wrote millions of words of theology. And there, supposedly there was a Q&A session at the end of this presentation he gave at the University of Chicago, and a student asked him if he could uh, summarize his theology in one sentence. So this is a person who's written millions of words on theology. And somebody says, could you just put it in a sentence for me? I don't have time to read <laughs> those millions of words. Just give me, give me the condensed version. And he said, in the words of a song that my mother taught me when I was just very small, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's been a famous story told ever since. That many who consider one of the greatest theologians, that's debatable depending on how you look at various things he said, but he summarized his theology in terms of the love of God for him, which at least means, from his perspective, he believed that that the Christian life was to flow out of a knowledge of God's love for us. I've been doing some reading in my quiet time 
I like to read things like Calvin's Institutes and things like that during my quiet time. Now I'm on John Owen's Communion with the Triune God. And um, it's an updated version, so it's not all as difficult as it could be. But it's an amazing thing. He talks about fellowship with God on a personal level. He talks about how um, most Christians, and he's talking about in his day, and I think he'd probably say probably in our day too, most Christians don't know what it means to commune with the Father in love. That's the way he puts it. They don't know what it means to commune personally, one-on-one, in your, quote, quiet time, he doesn't use that term, but that's what he's talking about, something like that, to commune with the Father in love. And he says the reason why is that we have all kinds of doubts, even as Christians, about the love of God for us. He says many look upon him, speaking of God, and talking about Christians, those proclaiming to be Christians, many look upon him with anxious, doubtful thoughts, They fear and question his goodwill and kindness. At best, they think he has no sweetness toward us, except what was purchased at the high price of Jesus' blood. Just kind of an interesting thing there. Uh, It's almost like God has to love me because Jesus died for me, sort of thinking. But he'd rather not. Think about that. He says... What we need to see is the Father as love. First John 4 says God is love. And he's arguing that the Father is being spoken of here. And he's arguing that in order to commune with God the Father, you need to see him as he's proclaimed to be in the Bible, as love. He says, do not look at him as a father who is always critical, but as one who is most kind and tender. By faith, let us look at him as someone who has had thoughts of kindness towards us from everlasting. Only a misapprehension of God would make someone run from the one who knows him in the least. So what he's saying is we uh, naturally run from God. And even as believers, we find it hard to sit down and commune with the Father, even for one hour, he says... Um, They could not bear an hour's absence from him if they believed in his love, but now they cannot watch with him for even one hour. He says we find it hard to pray for an hour. We find it hard to spend time in the word for an hour. We find it hard just to commune with God personally, individually, through the word and prayer and just meditate and uh, lift up our hearts to God. And he says, why is that? He says it's because of how we look at God. He argues that if we saw God as truly loving us, it would free us and motivate us, move us to spend time with God. And that's why he argues that we must believe in the love of God for us. He says, um, this is what I would provoke the saints of God to. They need to believe this love of God for themselves. They must believe that such is the heart of the Father towards them. And he goes on to say that it's through his word that we find out that God really loves us. He says, when the Lord is presented as such to you, as, as a God, a Father who loves you, Let your mind know it and assent to it. Let your will embrace it as being true and let all your emotions be filled with it. Set your whole heart to it. 
he argues that the very thing that Satan did in the Garden of Eden to lead Adam and Eve into sin was to use what he calls the war engine of the doubt of God's love for them. He says, There is nothing more grievous to the Lord nor more helpful to Satan's design than thoughts like these. You know, God is angry. God is critical. God isn't kind and patient and sweet toward me or anything like that. He says, Those thoughts are Satan's design to keep us from God. He says, Satan applauds when he is able to fill our soul with such thoughts of God. It satisfies all his desires. This has been his design and his way from the beginning. The first blood that that murderer shed was by this means. He led our first parents into these severe thoughts of God. With this war engine, he battered and overthrew all mankind in one step. Remembering his ancient conquest, he readily uses the same weapons today that he so successfully used then. He goes on to talk about the fact that not only does Satan use our doubting the love of God for us, even as Christians, but that the most grievous thing to God is that we doubt his love. There's nothing more, Owen would say, that pains the heart of God that his children doubt that he really loves them. It grieves him tremendously. He says, The Lord takes nothing worse at the hands of his own people than such hard thoughts of him. He knows full well what it is like to bear the fruit of this bitter root. He knows the alienation of the heart that it produces, the drawing back and the unbelief and the apostasy in our walk with him. A child is so unwilling to come into the presence of an angry father. He goes on to say, Why are men afraid to have good thoughts of God? They think it is audacity to see God as good, gracious, tender, kind, and loving. But he argues finally, We will delight in God only to the degree that we see him as loving us. So my love for God is very much rooted in whether or not I believe God loves me. My love for people is going to be based on whether or not I believe God loves me. My love for life and whatever comes my way in terms of giving thanks and worshiping God, even in the most difficult circumstances or the most pleasurable circumstances, is going to be rooted in whether or not I believe what comes my way comes from the hand of a God who loves me. Loves me dearly. And so I'm going to spend this week and next week talking about what does the Bible say? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So how does the Bible tell me that God loves me? And I think in our day and time that if our hearts desire and our prayers that we would be faithful to Christ, no matter what happens, then I need to know that that Christ loves me no matter what happens. That whatever falls apart around me, no matter what persecution might come, no matter what trials might come, in all of it I need to know that God loves me. One of the things that Paul prayed in Ephesians 3 is that believers would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And he says, he prays that for believers because 
That is the way that you're filled up to all the fullness of God. But he says that that love is surpassing knowledge. So we're going to go over this the next two weeks, and and you're not going to walk away thinking, well, I got it now. I know all that there is to know about how much God loves me. I view what we're going to do this Sunday, next Sunday, as uh, walking down to the beach and being like a little child who sticks his five toes into the edge of the water. These are the five toes that I want you to put into the edge of the water of the reality of God's love for you. But it will take a lifetime, indeed an eternity, to plumb the depths of that love. So I don't intend to try to answer all the questions or to adequately describe the love of God to you. But I do want you to know that there is abundant argument in the Bible that you can rest in the love of God for you. And it does call us to action depending on where we are in our relationship to him, and we'll talk about that as well. Well, the first thing is, and it starts right here, and this is actually where John starts. If you look again at verse 16, he says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so he says, God is love. There's a story that I've told before about a a man, holy man of some kind, some kind of religious man who went down to the edge of um, this river to um, meditate. And he sat at the bottom of a tree whose roots ran out into the water. And while he was having his meditations, the water began to rise, and he saw a scorpion that was actually caught in the roots and was about to drown in the rising water on the river. And so he gets down on his knees, and he's walking out onto the roots, and he's trying to grab that scorpion and rescue him from the rising water. And another person comes by and says um, to him, don't you know that that's a scorpion, and it's in his nature of a scorpion to want to sting because every time that holy man reached down to try to grab him and rescue him, he struck at him and tried to sting him. And the holy man said, you know, that may well be that it is his nature to respond the way he's responding, but it is my nature to save. And must I change my nature because the scorpion does not change its nature? Must I be different because the one I'm interacting with is different? That's exactly what John is saying here. He's saying the the root, the most important thing for me to know is that God is love. Uh, Spurgeon would say the same thing. He, He would say that among Christians who doubt the love of God, whether for themselves or for others, he would say it all comes down to a doubting of the nature of God not seeing that it's God's nature to love. Um, John says in verse 8, the very same thing. He repeats it. He says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And so the the first thing I have to ask myself is, uh, what do I think about the character of God? What do I think is unchangeable about God? What is something that is of God's essence? That if God shows up, that characteristic will show up. 
A good way to apply this personally is just to ask yourself, when you read the Bible and read about the God of the Bible, do you see that God as one who loves you? When you read the Bible and you read about the God of the Bible, do you see that God revealed there as someone who loves you? John is arguing that if God is love, then whoever looks at his revelation in the Bible ought to see love. Because the question is, can a God who is love not love someone? Earlier in, in 1 John, in 1 John 1, 5, he says, God is light. And it's phrased the same way. <clears throat> God is love, God is light. So the question is, can God ever not res- uh, relate to someone in light of his holiness? Can he be unholy in his relationship to anyone? And John would say no, because God is light. In him there is no darkness. Then he also says God is love, which means in his interactions with Everyone, he will always be loving in his interactions. In Psalm 136, verse 1, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Everlasting. It's always being manifested. God's goodness and his loving kindness, which are the same thing, manifested in different ways, is everlasting. In Psalm 145, 17, it says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. God is light. He's righteous in all his ways. His lightness always shows up. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. God is love. His love always shows up because he can't leave his love behind because he is love. Any more than he can leave his light behind, his holiness behind, that's what he is. But we get tripped up over the idea that It's just like the world. What does the world say? The world says, how can a God of love judge someone? They think that judging and love cannot go together. And we're tempted to think the same way. John MacArthur said, God is the essence of love. Love is inherent in all he is and does. Even his judgment and wrath are perfectly harmonized with his love. I've got a friend um, that I went to high school with, played football with, who went to law school, then became a judge in my hometown area. And his name was Doug. I could go up to Doug and say, Doug, why did you leave behind your love to become a judge? Why did you abandon love to become a judge? Why did you become such a hateful person by becoming a judge? And he said, Earl, what are you talking about? I'm the same person I was before I became a judge. He's a Christian. He's a believer. He would say, I didn't lay aside my, my love in order to judge. In fact, my judging is an expression of love. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 um, that love rejoices in righteousness. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices in what's right. It rejoices in doing what's right. And so when God does what's right in judging, he's not setting aside his love. He's expressing his love appropriately depending on the circumstance. And that's very important for us to understand because we can argue that 
God certainly couldn't love someone that he would judge. Well, there's plenty of evidence in the Bible that he does just that. The fact that he loves doesn't mean he's going to set aside his judgment if that is the right thing to do in that person's case. And so we need to be careful of the idea that love means letting people get away with murder. It doesn't mean letting people get away with murder. The world thinks if you loved me, you'd let me get away with murder. But that's not true. Even in loving his people, he has not let us get away with murder. He punished that murder on the cross. He punished his own son. He didn't let anyone, he never lets anyone get away with sin. So whether you're talking about believers or unbelievers, God never sets aside his justice. He never sets aside his holiness. He is light. But at the same time, he never sets aside his love. Someone has raised the question. I'm I'm taking a lot of time on this one because this is foundational. I can go faster next time over the other ones. But some people will say, isn't the problem that in our society, people think God loves them? Isn't that why They don't um, do what they should do. They don't respond to the gospel or they don't think rightly about uh, God. And I would argue that if you argue that the problem with sinners who don't know God is that they believe God loves them, you'd have to ask John Owen, how come uh, unbelievers believe God loves them but believers don't? What happened? We got saved and we stopped believing in the love of God? John Owen would say, no. Uh, Unbelievers don't believe God loves them. And even as believers, we struggle with the idea that God loves us. So what is it then when when, um, we get concerned over telling people that aren't believers God loves them? It's because many times they may hear that as, God is not light. God isn't going to hold me accountable for my sin. They may think it means God is just going to let me get away with murder. But that's not understanding that God is light and love and they go together. But if, if unbelievers really believed in the love of God, based on 1 John, we love because he first loved us, they would love God. You can't truly believe in the love of God and not love God. And so the fundamental issue that we all have is that we don't believe in the love of God. And it's only as God saves us and begins to renew our minds that we begin to see the love of God and we begin to love God as we should. And so God is loving. For some people, though, he is a loving judge. He's not yet their loving father because they have not received that love. They haven't responded to that love. And that's why the gospel is crucial. But Spurgeon would argue that the thing that attracts people to the gospel, and appropriately so, is that there is a God who loves to save sinners behind that gospel. There's a God who actually loves sinners. And therefore, it's the love of God that is the attraction. But it's not a love of God that's going to ignore their sin. If they refuse the provision made in Christ, then it's 
the love of a judge who will hold them accountable because he doesn't let people get away with murder. There are only two ways we can be rescued. That's either through the cross of Christ or not rescued. That's the only way we can be rescued. The only other alternative is that we pay that price ourselves. But all these other things are meant to help us understand how that plays out in our lives. And we're going to have to wait until next week to talk about that. But I just want to to leave you with this. Let me encourage you to ask yourself this week, do I believe God loves me? Do I know it? Do I believe it? And what difference has it made in my life? What difference has it made in my life? Let's pray. Father, I I pray that you would uh, help us as we think about this glorious truth of your love. Help us as we try to work through some of the things that trip us up, even as believers, in thinking about your love for us. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would receive fresh supplies of grace and fresh manifestations of your love for us and to us, because it is indeed in the cross that we see your love for us displayed so vividly. May we taste and see that you're good, that you are truly loving, and that you love us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.